0: This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Welcome to the library. I'm Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. This marks the end of our events on World War Z. Sad. The year academic year is ending. This is our last panel discussion. Um, summer is around the corner, so that's good news. Uh, we wanted to do a kind of serious event that has nothing to do with zombies, but has to do with uh, issue in the news, and that's vaccines, as you all know. So this is, you know, the truth about vaccines. We're going to get into the science, um, some history, some background, uh, and um, connect it in with kind of how does scientific thinking work and, and move through those lines. And to do this, I'm, I'm one of the librarians, so this is not my field of expertise. I've brought in people that know what they're talking about. So I'll start at the, at the end. We have Aaron Smith from philosophy. He will help us think about logic and ethics and things like that. To his left is Leila Khatib from biology, anatomy, physiology. To her left is Nick Hackett, the famous Nick Hackett from biology. (laughs) And to his left is Marianne Jatsik from nursing. So thank you all for your time and thoughts on this. So I'm going to set us up a little bit and uh, talk about a little history. So imagine this, if you will, join me in a little thought experiment In the summer of 1916, the state of New Jersey called out the National Guard and stationed them um, at the bridges across from New York City. They were stationed there to stop people from leaving the city and entering into the neighboring state, which was New Jersey. Even though World War I was underway, this troop action had nothing to do with the war. New Jersey was protecting itself from a disease. In May of that year, two children had been stricken with polio in Brooklyn. By the end of the month, 24 cases were reported. After two more weeks, 150 cases were spread across all five boroughs of the city. By the middle of the summer, a full-blown outbreak was underway, impacting thousands of people. At that time, there was no treatment for polio. When a case was reported, local authorities forced children and families to be quarantined in an effort to stop the disease from spreading, so you were locked up. Of course, many families did not like the idea of being placed under house arrest, so many times new cases were not reported. Polio is a disease that attacks the central nervous system. In many cases, it causes paralysis of the arms and legs. In the worst cases, it attacks the lungs, resulting in death. Polio, also known as infantile paralysis disease, was the sort of disease that struck fear into parents because it was, a known, it was known for attacking uh, the least strong, so newborns often died um, horrible deaths. In the summer of 1916, not even the National Guard could stop the disease. By the end of that summer, the outbreak had reached New York, uh, uh, upstate New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, Pennsylvania. In New York City, there were 9,000 cases of paralysis and over 2,400 deaths. That's in one, in one summer. In total, the outbreak caused 23,000 cases and 5,000 deaths. So think about this. That's a 20% death rate. So one in five people who got the disease died. Uh, For us today, we can't even think of those kind of numbers. That doesn't happen in the United States anymore. Um, This is unheard of. Uh, The 1916 outbreak is one of the most famous outbreaks, but similar outbreaks would occur over the next four decades. Polio outbreaks shut down theaters, public pools, amusement parks, and other public areas. As outbreaks occurred, going out in public became dangerous. Many of you probably know that Jonas Salk and his team of researchers concluded trials of the polio vaccine in the 1950s, Uh, When it became available to the public, entire families rushed to be vaccinated. There were lines at churches and public buildings so that parents could get their kids vaccinated. Polio had caused, on average, 16,000 deaths per year. After the vaccine um, was in place, this average fell to zero, no deaths. We went from calling out the National Guard so people wouldn't leave New York City to having no deaths. The the crazy thing with this is that this didn't just happen with polio. So listen closely to these numbers. These are average deaths per year per disease before vaccines were in place to after. Diphtheria, 21,000 deaths on average after vaccines were in place, one death per average. Measles, 500,000 deaths to 55. Mumps, 162,000 deaths to 229 smallpox 29,000 deaths to zero between 1920 and 1955 the lifespan of Americans increased by 25 percent this is one of the largest increase in the lifespan of humans in history the increase wasn't entirely due to vaccines there were other factors but vaccines definitely played a serious role today diseases like polio whooping cough mumps diphtheria and many others feel like ancient history we do not feel the, the fear felt by past generations. In fact, there's a movement of people today in the U.S. who fear the vaccines more than they fear these diseases that they prevent. You may have heard that that the, you may have heard of this fear, and you may have heard that vaccines cause autism, which is not true, or perhaps that vaccines cause some other damage to your body. Uh, this week is the World Health Organization's World Immunization Week, and today we're going to talk about the science behind vaccines. We're going to talk about their safety, and we're going to get some perspective, um, not just in history, but also in science today on the value vaccines offer and whether or not there are risks behind these vaccines. So to get us started, that was a historical touch. We want to bring it up to the present with this video. So I'm going to play a little CNN clip.
1: People who are not getting vaccinated, they're not getting their children vaccinated, right. and that, that's a real problem.
2: Sanjay, more people in the U.S. have been affected with measles during the first four months of this year than have been affected in the past 18 years. Why is it happening? Why this increase?
1: You, you know, I think there's there's two things that are going on here, and as you know, Anderson, I just returned from from Africa covering this Ebola story, and one of the things that reminds you of is that we live in a very global world where where these, these pathogens can can move around the world faster than ever before, and and, and that's happening. I mean, many of these cases in the United States came from overseas initially, 17 of the cases, for example, from the Philippines. But the other issue here, and this is something we've talked about a lot, is that you have increasingly these large pockets of unvaccinated people, people who are not getting vaccinated, not getting their children vaccinated, and that, that's a real problem. If, if you, It's a very contagious disease. If someone comes, brings it, in this case, from another country, it could spread very quickly in those, in those pockets.
2: Hey, I mean, you're a doctor. Have you ever seen a patient with measles?
1: No, you know, Anderson, since I was thinking about this, you and I have both seen a, a patient with measles, but it was not in this country. It was in Africa, back when we were working on a documentary a few years ago. Uh, as a doctor in the, in the United States, I have not seen a patient with measles. We, we've made really good progress but you know in other countries obviously you still see cases in fact take a look at a map quickly anderson you can get an idea of what it looks like around the world and those places where you see the highest cases and the most number of cases those are also perhaps not surprisingly the places where vaccinations are lowest
2: and some of the symptoms what should people look for i mean how dangerous are we talking about
1: you know it starts off in many ways as as a viral illness people get the fatigue the fever the headache What is sort of characteristic about measles, and the one thing people often know is, you get this this characteristic rash uh, around your body. Uh, It's these sort of almost pinpoint red rash. It can also affect your eyes and develop something known as conjunctivitis. Um, Those are some of the the outward symptoms. Where it can get really scary and life-threatening is when you start to develop infections of the lung and the brain. And even for people who recover after having developed an infection of in the brain, it can be very debilitating. Their lives are just never the same.
2: If you get vaccinated as a child, though, you don't have to worry about the virus now, right?
1: The vaccine is very effective. What they are saying is that you know, for adults who got vaccinated you know, after 1956, it may be worthwhile at a, at a future visit to make sure that you're, you're still immunized. They can do a blood test and, and figure that out. But, yeah, it's an effective vaccine. You know, Anderson, let me just point out that if you look at vaccine, childhood vaccination programs overall, just over the last 20 years, they have prevented some 300 million illnesses in this country. 300 million. close, Close to a million deaths prevented. We talk so much about the fact that we treat disease after it occurs. Everyone gives a lot of lipstick to prevention. The vaccines have worked. We have the data now to show that.
2: And also save billions of dollars in, 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 in health care costs. So bottom line, uh, I mean, you, you get your kids vaccinated. There's no reason not to vaccinate your kids.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked that because I think it's really important not to be equivocal on this. And you hear a lot of people sort of, well, I do this, but I do that. Yeah, I got my kids vaccinated. I got them vaccinated on schedule. I have three young children who are eight, six, and four. And I say that because I I read all the studies. I've looked at all this. You and I interviewed Dr. Wakefield together who wrote this paper that caused such controversy and was subsequently dismissed. Um, But with all that I know and, and, and all that I've researched, yeah, I chose to do this with my own children, and, you know, I think there's something important about that.
0: Okay, so with that set up, we'd like to get started and ask uh, maybe our bio folks, uh, Nick or Layla, whoever wants to, to jump in, to really um, hit the, what's the science of vaccines? How do vaccines work, and how should we understand what these things are and uh, what they do?
3: Can you hear me? Yes? Okay. Um, so the way vaccines work is basically you get a piece of the virus or the bacteria into your body. Now, the virus or the bacteria, it's the piece that is not going to make you sick. The piece that's going to make you sick is taken out. The whole idea is if you've ever had the chicken pox, you only have it once. It's not because you never see it again, but because your body builds immunity against it. So the way viruses work in a nutshell is that, again, that piece of bacteria or vi- vaccines so is <laughs> the way the vaccines work is, again, you get that piece, so you call on your immune system to attack without actually making you sick. So your immune system basically forms these memory cells, which remember the pathogen or the bacteria or the virus that's going to make you sick the next time you see it. So it attacks it before it gets a chance to attack you. Um, there are different ways the virus, that vaccines could be made. Um, the, oldest, the oldest way is basically... Um, just a piece of the virus itself with a, a live virus or a live bacteria with a piece that makes you sick is taken out. Now, more modern, modernized, they could be genetically modified, which is DNA cut and pasted to make the virus or the bacteria that's going to make you sick in there, again, that, that's going to elicit your immune response without actually making you sick.
4: There's a larger piece of this, too, which is the idea of herd immunity, that if we can get enough people in the population immune to a disease, that a disease can't really spread because it has to spread from one person to another. And so uh, what we want is to make the whole population immune so that even if the disease is around, even if it gets in your body, it can't make you sick and it can't spread to somebody else and make them sick. So there's a personal side to this, like how the vaccine works, and then the larger population side of what it does for everybody, not just your body.
5: Oh, can I just jump in? Yeah, uh, please. And forgive a philosopher for speaking about this, but there's also some people who actually cannot be uh, immunized, and I'll defer to the biologist for I don't know exactly why, but they're immunocompromised, so they can't get uh, the vaccine, so their very survival and not getting the diseases is contingent upon everyone else surrounding them getting vaccinated. So that's a really important ethical concern.
0: Well, right, and then the detail to add, too, then, is they, there's recommendations on when you should get your first round, right? So newborns typically do not get their first round of vaccines until... Well,
3: right away, 10 days?
0: 10 days, yeah. But that takes...
3: It takes a while, right. right. So, yeah, like within the first couple of years of their lives, they're not fully vaccinated. So some diseases like whooping cough, for example, they could be going through the vaccine schedule, but if they encounter someone who has whooping cough, they will get it, even yeah. though they're on the schedule.
0: Okay, great. Um And this is just a side note, but, you know, talking about the history of this, I mean, the vaccines are new in the 20th century, but the idea of inoculation, we've had around for several hundred years, right?
3: The 1800s. Yeah, Yeah.
0: where they would take the actual disease and expose you to it, especially smallpox and Mm -hmm. that were really wiping out populations, then you would take your chances on if you survived or not, but then you would become immune and move on. So, yeah.
6: And if I could add, um, so I was tasked with doing some of the data mining for this group and reading some of the research and bringing some of the statistics, so unfortunately some of my stuff might sound a little dry, I'll try to make a little joke now and then to keep you interested. but. Um, One of the things when I was reading that they brought up is that, you know, that's the background of a lot of what we do in medicine is there's a small exposure to build your own normal immune process. And that's actually, if you think about when infants and children are developing, their immune system is developing because of everything they're exposed to in their environment. Of course, the microbiologist would say a lot more about this, but, you know, every time a kid puts their hand to their mouth, they're putting something in their body, and every time they eat a new food, they're exposing themselves to all kinds of organisms and viruses and things that are normally in the environment, that in those tiny little doses now, they're building up immunity so that it can't create disease, it can't cause harm. So that's really how the body functions. That's part of how we've been able to outlive many diseases and many problems, and that's the underpinning of vaccination is from that kind of normal process of how your immune system would develop in life. Right. Thank you.
0: So let's go um, to the current controversy around vaccines and maybe talk about, they mentioned in the video, Andrew Wakefield and, and everything that arose from his research. which I think Right. Marianne
6: has. So um, Andrew Wakefield was a physician in London and he noticed in his practice that um, he saw children that were between um, one and two years of age that had symptoms of GI disturbances and had autism and that these children also were undergoing the MMR vaccination because that's the most, um, one of the most common times that you receive one of those injections is 12 to 16 months of age. So he put these three things together in his practice and said, We should think about this. We should look into this. Maybe this is something to pay attention to, which, again, is a very positive approach to science. That's how we come up with a hypothesis. We observe something. We notice something, and we say, oh, I can make a connection here. Let's look further into this. Let's see if this makes sense. Um, So he started out in a very positive way, and a lot of really good things in science have started that way. Um, However, he then seemed to vary from the course of solid science. Um, So some of the flaws in his study were um, that he looked at this data retrospectively. So he noticed these things, and then he went back and interviewed the parents of these 12 children, um, probably with some very leading questions about when symptoms occurred, when they noticed certain problems, how things got started. And he seemed to kind of um, put his data in the direction that the immunization caused the GI problem. And so he was saying, see, your body didn't even want this immunization. Your body got sick. It was trying to move that out. And when it didn't, now autism developed. Later on, and you know, so that study did get published in the Lancet, which is a very prestigious journal in um, England, it's similar to JAMA here in the United States. Um, And when that happens, and it's based on a very small number, then other scientists, other doctors expand on that, right? So now they're gonna do more research, they're gonna do more studies to see, is this true? Does this make sense? Does, Does it follow? Or is there a mistake in this process? Um, Now, unfortunately, we didn't hear about all those other studies. We just continued to hear about Wakefield for quite some time, and that's where a lot of the vaccine scare came from. Um, I want to fill in the rest of the story for you. So um, one thing that they found was um, because the MMR is such an important thing in England, 90% of children during that time were vaccinated between 12 and 16 months of age. And so... It was very hard to have any kind of control to compare were there children without the vaccine that had autism because they were so strong in giving the vaccinations, and that was part of the public health system for very good reason, to keep the public healthy, to keep kids on this schedule. Um, so there's no control group. So the issue is he couldn't compare... Kids that didn't have the vaccination with autism, what did it look like? And that is a huge flaw, as most of you know, in looking at science. You have to also say, all right, if this doesn't occur, would there be a similar outcome? He never even went and interviewed other autistic kids' families. He just stayed with his original group of 12, even though we know the numbers of autism are certainly much higher and there were people available. Um, They also went back and found that the GI symptoms were present when they re-interviewed parents, other scientists re-interviewed those parents, the GI symptoms were present before the MMR vaccination. So his theory that the MMR was being rejected, which caused the GI, which led to the autism, was found to be faulty because the GI was there even before a vaccination had been entered into the patient's body. Um, at that point, over 10 scientists um, spoke out and said, um, we don't want to be connected to the study any further. We've clearly proven that this study is not valid. And they retracted um, most of the information. The Lancet, the journal that originally published it, came forward and said, This has been proven to be not true. This is faulty information. Here are the other scientists and the other things that they found. So they completely, in the media in England, clarify the situation. Um, However, again, it was very hard for me in researching to find that because we keep just finding the original Wakefield when you look at controversy and vaccine. Wakefield is what pops up. Can
0: can I add one thing? Um, When the Lancet retracts it, it's different than just saying – that it's wrong, because there's legitimate studies that follow legitimate methodologies that for whatever reason a variable was out of place or it's an outlier result is still a legitimate finding, but it doesn't really represent quote-unquote truth where other people disprove it. That happens all the time, and those kind of articles do not necessarily get retracted, right? They stay in place because that's part of how science works, is that we keep adding and building and having new findings. But to retract it really means we have methodological problems we find this to be fraudulent and we now pull it from our publication and it's a kind of a big deal that the Lancet would take that kind of step
6: right and also the 10 of the 13 scientists wanted their name separated from the study the same kind of thing right so they're not saying oh here was the first step and now I'm part of the second step they're saying don't put my name next to his because I don't want to be connected to that kind of practice
0: and he went on, and he's still going, yeah, still making still going. money, still selling and he's stuff, still going. so yeah. Right. Um, today, if you ask most people who do not believe that they should vaccinate themselves or their children, they do not think that vaccines cause autism, right? They're, there's now, most people that I've read um, things online, a list of other kinds of stuff. So it seems like it's pretty solid out there that vaccines and autism do not have a link, but still the belief that vaccines are problematic carry on and i wonder if um i don't know if aaron or nick will have comments on that
5: um well i mean for me as a philosopher i did fundamentally think this is just an issue of critical thinking skills and a lack of scientific literacy um i think there's and i don't mean to sound like i'm on this high horse like i'm so much smarter than everyone else and study philosophy I mean, you should study philosophy but not for those reasons um but the real issue here is I think there's a lot of very, very smart people out there and who are well-educated, who've read a lot of material, and then they find something in this sort of research. Oh, yeah, I have a problem with vaccines, or maybe I'll wait, or maybe I'm against GMO foods, and, or I'm against this or against that, and they're smart. And then the science is really overwhelming, and if you're like me, it's, I haven't had a biology class Since 1989. I've got a PhD in philosophy, but I haven't had biology in, you know, 20 years. Or more, um, and that's—I mean—that's a problem with my scientific literacy. I mean, but I also just have to acknowledge that and understand that. But I think a lot of people are in my position; they don't think very critically, so they hear this information and think, "I'm a smart person. I don't understand it, therefore, it's wrong. It's gobbledygook." And then there's also what's called confirmation bias, where people think that they have a certain belief, and then they find a little bit of information and. Um, well, then they just believe it. I mean, And people believe all sorts of weird things, too. But, I mean, I'll pass the hat over to my colleagues as well.
4: Uh, I feel old, like, blaming the Internet, too. But I feel like that's a big part of this, is that if you're looking for a validation of any idea that you have about anything, you can find people on the Internet that have that view. And so if you have this view of what vaccines do to you or why they're bad, and you're looking for that, you will find it. And that just reinforces the whole issue. And so it's, um, I think it's a really interesting thing about what ideas stick in the population or about media literacy, too, not just science literacy. You know, how you trust information on the Internet, how you find the right ideas.
5: Yeah, it's. I mean, that's just exceptionally difficult, and it's almost impossible to overcome. And there's been all sorts of recent studies, um, specifically about vaccines and, other, uh, and others, but I wish we had a, Um, I'm not a a psych professor, so I don't know all of the detail here, but people really tend to sort of find information and believe stuff, and even if you present information that is explicitly contrary to their original beliefs, people, that actually just reinforces their original beliefs, and people get even more stuck in their weird, crazy, kooky beliefs. And you only have to go to the Internet to see all the weird conspiracy theories. Like In my philosophy classes, I still encounter probably one or two students a semester who actually think we faked moon landings. And, that, I, I mean, and, again, if you're a moon landing fake, faker believer, okay, come talk to me after this. I'd be happy to, to talk to you. But, at the same time, I mean, that's that's a relatively innocuous belief, right, because if you believe the moon landings were fake, there's really no, that doesn't harm other people. But, for us, uh, up here, this is a real huge issue. I've got a little baby at home, and if you don't get vaccinated because it's just some kooky crud you read on the Internet, and you, you can harm her, and that, that's right. bad. And, I mean, there's all sorts of potential problems that come with this. I mean, I don't want to get in the business of forcing people to believe things, but I certainly wish I could because I think we'd all be happier. <laughs> mm. Don't we all? Don't we all?
3: Well, I'm going to go ahead and blame it on celebrities because mm. how many celebrities out there go out, can't vaccinate because I don't want my kids to be, what was it we read the other day, ear infections? Was it ear infections? Ear, ear infections. She was linking with Jay Cutler's wife. Our fiancé, she was linking vaccines to ear infections. What does that have to do with the other? And how many people read it and believe, oh, yeah, my kid got an infection right after I vaccinated him. So that must be true. She must be right. So it's just sorting out the information and who we get it from. Right. And
0: right. um, Aaron had mentioned that there's, um, you know, consensus and solid research under the safety of vaccines. And I know Marianne had dug up some research. Um, could you maybe outline a little bit some sure. of the studies? Just, I mean, I don't want to fall back to, oh, the people that don't vaccinate um, are kooky. I mean, I think there's some, it's more complex than that. And I don't think that's exactly what you're saying, Erin. But I also think to hear where the solid evidence is and what it comes from is, is part of the need that we need to put out.
6: So I did try to look at, and this is, because this is a continuing issue, there is current, information. So um, the CDC is still supporting research on debunking or demystifying that link between autism and um, vaccination. And so there was a very large study um, published in the journal Pediatrics in 2013, so very current study. Um, They looked at 256 children that had autism spectrum disorder and 752 matched controls. So kids that were the same in every way except they didn't meet the criteria for autism spectrum disorder. So over a thousand kids were evaluated for this study and double the control as the primary group and they found zero incidence of a connection of the antigen from the vaccine being present when the symptoms of autism were being reported or present in the patient. And that's really again where they're trying to look at, you know, does giving you this antigen create something different in your nervous system, create something different in your body that leads to a disease. If you read any of the current medical textbooks, in um, any of our nursing textbooks, they very clearly say that we now know that autism starts in utero and that um, the, ner- the change to the nervous system is present during development during pregnancy, okay, in utero while the-, while the baby is still inside the mother. And the nervous system is the first system that develops. So one of the concerns is oftentimes women are pregnant into their third month, into their fourth month, and may not know they're pregnant, and so have been exposed to toxins, have been using substances, have not been taking good nutrition or all their full chemicals um, or vitamins that would be supporting healthy growth of the baby, and four months have gone by. All the nervous system um, blueprint is already laid down. So finding out later or not having access to supportive care early on in your pregnancy is probably what leads to a lot of these issues, not later on during the child's um, life exposing them to a vaccine. Um, And so this study actually um, followed up on another huge study by the Institute of Medicine in 2004, and again they said, no causal relationship they then started looking at the preservatives you'll read some of the stuff that the preservatives in all the vaccines are part of the issue so there was a large study on the safety of the preservative that was um, published again in pediatrics that was published in 03 and again the finding was there's no connection to any development of any neurologic problems. Um, They then did a follow up study and they evaluated kids from ages 10 to 12 who had had vaccinations, seeing if there was any um, prediction in any neuropsychiatric or neuropsychological outcomes. Um, Ten years after vaccinations, both groups, so the the actual group and the control group, um, were tested on 24 neuropsychological outcomes, and they don't show any change in neurological or developmental growth, no harm to the children. So that was published in Pediatrics in 2009. So we have still a lot of um, ongoing work being done. I had a Danish study of over 500,000 children across seven years. Again, no association between vaccination and now they're broadening it to any neurological problems. And then they even asked about, does it cause regression? So they're saying, well, what if you believe that autism develops, but giving the vaccine makes autism worse? So they went and studied that and, again, found this was in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders in 2006. They looked at um, the MMR vaccine as well as the other vaccines and, again, said um, a case control study, 351 children and no evidence of any regression in symptoms, which would be increase in symptoms, no evidence of any increase in the seriousness of the disease after vaccination than before.
0: I want to go back to the point about the preservatives and um, the thimerosal point. And that, that's what people often say. Thimerosal, it's a form of mercury, as I understand it. And uh, people often say, how can that be good um, to be in your body? We can't put that in our body because mercury is bad. So while we have people that understand things like biology here, I want to ask, can you guys help me understand that? Put you on the spot. I don't know if you're prepared for that or not.
3: I guess not at all. <laughs> yeah, 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 Go ahead. Well, the preservatives, first of all, is nothing that we we don't see every day. It's nothing extra, and It's in such minute amounts that it's not really going to affect our central nervous system to that detail, to that, to that extent. Um, and weren't you saying, Nick, that it's the same one that's found in contact, the same preservatives right. that are found in the solution, Marianne said of the contact lens. If so you wear contact lenses, you're exposed to contact lenses. You're exposed to that chemical in much greater amounts daily than just getting vaccinated.
4: I mean, this is an example of we have all the facts in the world. You know, we have all the evidence that you need that says that these things are harmless. And we've used them for decades and decades, and they've been harmless. But how it is that some people still don't accept that or why it is is really the confusing issue here. You know, what it is about people that are meaning to do the right thing, that they want to protect their kids, that's an understandable idea, and get a little off track, um, I think part of this is that it's very satisfying to imagine that you have a solution to a problem. And especially with autism that we don't understand, it provides this very simple cause and effect. I did this, my kid got this. I didn't do this, my kid didn't get that. And so I think one of the things that this offers people is a kind of comfort to understanding why we run into these sorts of issues, even though they're rare, even though we don't understand why. And I think that might be a little piece to why people don't look at simple data that says that a fraction of a tiny amount of this metal that is used as a preservative, you know, doesn't do anything. It doesn't hurt you. But why people attach to that idea, um, I don't know. And I think we'll get into that as the panel goes on, hopefully. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Just to follow up on that point, I also think that, I mean, that's just a really key idea because... But when you're talking about parents and children, I mean, parents, you know, I'm a parent. I get protective of my children. I mean, I want to protect them, and I want to do the best that I can for them. And then even if you have this sort of you know, one in a million thing, you're thinking like, well, Mercury isn't bad, but man, there's that one in a, tr- or even one in a trillion chance that it could cause a problem. And then I don't want to cause a problem for my baby girl or my baby son or whoever. And so I, I'm against that. And and so it's just misunderstanding the risk. Like on one hand, we get emotional. We love our kids. We don't want to hurt them. And we do all sorts of things we want to protect them. But then that also causes us to like sort of misunderstand statistics. And we just don't want to be the exception that proves the rule. It's not comforting to a parent has, your kid has a reaction to a vaccine and that was a one in a million chance and your kid dies, I mean, that happens, right? But that's not very comforting to that parent who's like, well, you know, 999,999 other children survived and, you know, your kid didn't die of measles and you caused, you helped herd immunity. That's not very comforting to someone who's dealing with a child. So you don't think about those risks. You see that one in a million chance and you're like, ooh, I don't know about that. And so people really just misunderstand risks when the, uh, you talk about things like their children, because you know what? Children are kind of important to us.
6: Yeah. And, and I think that's where, um, from a healthcare perspective, a healthcare provider, a nurse, we have to really work harder and do a better job at our communication about these issues So, because it's not only about the data. It's not only about the numbers, but it's exactly what you're saying. You're dealing with people's feelings and you're dealing with people's um, idea that, well, if it's a one in a million, you guys all take that one in a million chance and I'll still be okay. Um, but I think what we have to remind people as well is that what I started out saying about this is just building on the normal human bodies ability to survive in the world. And so the process of exposing yourself to something and your body managing it in a healthy way, whether it's mercury, whether it's a virus, whether it's an antibody or an antigen, your body does that all the time. And if you're generally healthy, you'll continue to do that. So you'll remove the mercury, you'll remove the virus, you'll remove it, and you won't have any problem. And helping parents understand that. The issue comes when, again, in the herd issue, If we have more and more people who are immunocompromised, if we have more and more people who are having these diseases, carrying the disease, now your body can't take care of itself because it's fighting a disease. So now the risks are higher not only for your child but for society in general because we can't do what we should be normally doing. So really the whole vaccination, even though it's seen as – putting an outside thing into your body, it's mimicking a natural process of your body that is actually very good for you and very healthy and will continue your life and your ability to stay healthy.
0: One of the interesting things I came across uh, researching the whole polio uh, intro here is that polio has been around for hundreds of years. Uh, There's evidence that the Egyptians had dealt with polio, but it wasn't as bad as it became um, by the early 1900s, and that's because... Um, our sanitation throughout human history was so bad that we were exposed to it. Now, of course, that sanitation also caused us to die a lot earlier. But we became naturally immune to polio. But once we became more clean with how we lived in cities especially, we lived longer, and then polio mutated and became worse. So the kinds of polio that we saw at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s was nowhere like the polio that we had lived with for hundreds of years so one thing led to the other but um so anyway that's a totally side note but it, it plays to your point that it's a naturally occurring um prevention um now what's the trade-off I mean I think we would rather live in cleaner cities and live longer and and then find the vaccine than whatever but okay
6: so we really could have both
0: we could have both but there seems to be this thing with risk so I want to really get into this risk analysis um, So we say vaccines don't cause autism. I think almost everyone accepts that. Even people that are against vaccines anymore tend to accept that. No autism, but they might cause something else. We don't. You know, there's this thing we don't know. You don't know. I'm going to get vaccinated. You don't know what's going to happen in 40 years. They're going to find that those vaccines with that stuff in there cause something worse. What's wrong with that thinking?
3: You can get the disease meanwhile.
0: Okay, So number one.: I thought yeah. about
3: that because I have four kids, and when vaccinating, I did look into that, to be completely honest, I did look into, and the risk of them actually getting the disease they're getting vaccinated for is much greater than actually them getting autism or any type of side effects. So I wouldn't want them to get the disease meanwhile, diseases like measles. That's why measles is making a comeback, mumps, whooping coughs. Okay. because of these.
6: The other thing that, again, we have to always remember in any kind of medicine is everything is uh, balanced between risk and benefit. There's no treatment that we're providing today that doesn't have some kind of a risk, a side effect, an adverse effect. my students will validate, Uh, when I'm talking about anything in class, I always say, you know, as nurses, we want to look for and try to take care of the, the early things, the first things, the things we can help the person get over and still be healthy. We don't want to wait for seizure coma death to occur, but every med in the book that we study could result in seizure coma death, so it isn't just vaccines that have risks, Any treatment that you're looking at from a medication point of view has risks associated with it. Um, and, And things do happen. Kids do get earaches after they get vaccines at a little bit higher rate than kids that don't get vaccines. But how many of us can say we know a kid under five that's never had an earache? So it's pretty common experience in childhood that you get an earache at some point. So the fact that you might get an extra one during your vaccination process is a risk, that some kids will face. It's not going to permanently change their life. They're going to get over it. Their parents can give them Tylenol and give them a lot of holistic things I'd be happy to talk about next time (laughs) that will help get them through that disease, but then they're going to be fine. And next week, no one's even going to remember they had an earache because we're going to be on to the next thing. So it's not that there aren't valid issues of side effects and risks. The issue is if you are... Um, exposed to and contract um, measles right now, so since the measles outbreak is what's going on, I looked at those numbers, you have a 1 in 500 chance of dying from measles. There are no deaths connected to the measles vaccination, and it's 1 in a million that you will have a severe reaction. So when you look at those numbers again and think about, I have to balance risk versus benefit, yes, I absolutely don't want your little daughter to have that one-in-a-million reaction. But even then, it's very likely, especially in this area, that we'll call 911 and we'll get her treated and she's not going to die from it. If she's exposed to measles, one-in-500 chance. and, And... Before death, there are lots of serious problems. It causes brain swelling, so there's permanent deafness. There are permanent changes to their muscle function. So even the kids that survive have very serious outcomes, none of which are connected to the vaccine. So you have to balance, which risk do I want to take? There's a risk of living in the world without the vaccine. There's a risk of what can happen with the vaccine. Those are your options. I don't have a bubble to put you in where there's no risk to your baby at all.
4: I think it's important here to understand scale, too. I mean, we can list these numbers. You know, there might be 500 people in the immediate area, in the library, in a couple of classrooms, upstairs, downstairs. A million people is phenomenal. It's like the entire, you know, or a a huge chunk of the city of Chicago. And so that's not a number that we run into. And so the difference in scale there is amazing versus the risk you'd run into with a vaccine, which is very small. Versus the risk of you getting a disease which is significant and bad, and that's why those things have haunted humanity forever. They're not, it's right. no joke. Right.
0: I think, you know, when I listed those numbers uh, at the beginning, you know, 16,000 a year died of this and 200,000. The thing is, when you multiply those together, our grandparents' generation, some of you maybe your great grandparents' generation, you, you absolutely knew people that suffered and died from these d- diseases, were disfigured, were in wheelchairs. I mean this was a common occurrence that when those vaccines came up they were absolutely ready for the vaccines because you knew uncle so and so who had whatever right? right now we don't know those people and so that fear of the unknown becomes oh this this vaccine may cause this mystery thing in the future I'd rather take my chance than to face measles because I've never seen measles even you know from the CNN clip they've never they you know most doctors never see measles walk in right so, Aaron, I don't know from the philosophical perspective, there's some interesting, um, maybe logical arguments at play here. And I don't know if there's anything... Well,
5: you know, did you want me to go ahead and get into the ethics? Is that what you're going um, to or you going
0: Not quite yet. I w- maybe around belief. I, you know, well, one thing that I find interesting, so let me ask you a question and then answer another one. It's sure. my own. The thing with beliefs, this is how I work uh, when you're the moderator... <laughs> This may lead into some errant comments. So the thing with beliefs is they tell you what to recognize in the world, what counts as evidence and what doesn't. So that's the, some of the confirmation bias. I ignore certain things. I grab onto certain things. When that happens, they become self-reinforcing. So I discount things that may change my mind if I was open to them. right? And then over time, I build up this body of evidence that tells me that I'm right. So many times I have my belief first and my evidence comes into play second. And then that's how, and that's how some of us, maybe all of us at some level, live our lives. And so I don't know if there is the philosopher to, to weigh in on that.
5: Well, I mean, I think for me as a philosopher, the key is being able to uh, question beliefs and assumptions and engage in a process of self-examination. I mean, this is the fundamental beginning point of philosophy is to sort of question idea, ideas and challenge assumptions. This is what Socrates uh, was doing. I mean... And if you can make a quick parallel between Athens was a democracy and a really enlightened place and they put Socrates to death, not because he was doing bad things, but because they had a lot of kooky beliefs and they were really scared and fear ran rampant in ancient Athens and they put Socrates to death. So when we're out there not getting our kids vaccinated, um, we're scared. And even though we can be the most rational people in the world, we still do things that just make no rational sense whatsoever. And this is why we always have to be willing to sort of question beliefs and challenge assumptions. But that's really, really hard because if you're questioning beliefs and you're challenging assumptions, and you're a sleep-deprived new parent, and you're in the doctor's office, and you're trying to make decisions, and you've you've got your two message boards that you're a part of, and someone had a problem with vaccinations and this and that and the amount of over information is really overwhelming and then you don't necessarily know what kind of source is credible and where to go to right do you go to your doctor well the medical establishment has you know things and there's a vaccination industry and they make millions of dollars off vaccines and I don't want to contribute that and corporations are bad because I buy stuff at a natural health food store and my head's going to explode because I'm stressed Mm -hmm. and people don't always make good rational decisions and I think as a philosopher. And that's not news. We, we see that as long as humans have existed. But what's really important is to actually try to help people make good decisions. And then, and that's really hard. It's really hard to get people to make good decisions. And as philosophers, we fundamentally failed in doing this because if it was just a matter of logic and being rational, we all would be making good decisions now, right? Because you know, philosophers were awesome. But sadly, people are not always rational. Yeah.
6: And, and I want to jump in as a psychiatric nurse. So you said a little bit about understanding the part of the mind. Um, And I like to think of myself a little bit as a philosopher. I love reading about philosophy, but I'm not very good at it. But um, I do know a lot about how the brain works and how our thinking works. And what we look at is, um, and any of you who have taken a psych class, I, I know, have had this experience. As you're reading those symptoms... I have that, my mother has that. my sister has I know someone who had right. We all can see those symptoms in all of us, and then what do we have to remember it 's the symptom making you unable to function that makes it a disease. so one kind of thinking process that happens to all of us at some times is we can have delusional thinking, and we kind of we talked about that as, as kind of that um, bias right, so that you see things that match with you. Well, the other part of that is that. You don't listen to people, and logic won't com- change the way that you think about something that's delusional. It's fixed in your mind. You believe it, and that's it. Now, if that's true about I own a calendar, and on my calendar every day it says a color, so I wear that color every day. Today was gray. I have gray pants on. Okay? It doesn't change my function. I come to work. I do my job. Nobody cares that I'm wearing gray pants or not, but I did my delusional process, and you're not going to talk me out of that. I'm not coming here tomorrow if I don't have white on because that's the color tomorrow, okay? But I'll be here because I already have a shirt that's white, and I'm ready to go. Now, if my delusional process is this is dangerous to my child, so I'm not going to do it, and because of that we see a resurgence of measles, and now people are dying, it changes my function. It makes it harmful to someone my child who doesn't have the vaccine and other children who are now being exposed to it So now it meets the criteria for we have to do something for that person. You are now a patient. You are now someone that needs some treatment and that's a very difficult thing to do because people are set in their false fixed beliefs and you're not going to talk them out of it. But it comes to that same parallel of we look at the things our way and if it doesn't matter to anyone else that's fine and for a long time that happened. A few people didn't get vaccines. They were the hippies. They were the weirdos. They were the people, the holistic nurses, right? We didn't get vaccines, and now what are we seeing? The diseases are coming back that we hadn't seen for 40, 50, 60 years. So now we have to talk about it again, and we have to figure out how to change that thinking as health care providers to make the disease go away again if that's our goal. Right.
0: Um, Aaron had hit on the point of the big pharmacy, big pharmaceutical companies are purchasing um, their way into this vaccine industry. And I I hear that from people often. Well, this is just a wave to sell vaccines. From the science perspective, because, you know, for us that read the literature and that look at the studies, we can see a disconnect between industry and between research. But people that are outside of academics, they don't make that recognition. They see everything wound together. And I wonder if you could talk about how you see that separation and maybe where there may be connections. What one was, I don't know.
6: Well, I, could I just add, though, that yes. if you want to look at um, getting rich, you're not going to get rich making or selling vaccines. You're going to get rich making and selling Viagra. So, you know, in big pharmacy, they're not, their um, dollars, if, and again, this is all public information if you go, to go read it. Their dollars don't come from those kinds of interventions. Their do, those dollars, the big dollars and the money comes from um, cholesterol medications, impotence medications, erectile dysfunction medications. Those are the things that sell a lot and make a lot of money. So I'd say you shouldn't take that pill.
4: I think, I mean, the hallmark of science and philosophy is that we question authority. And I don't uh, you doubt that at all. I mean, I certainly would have questions about any giant pharmaceutical company that's doing this. And I think what we're all ultimately hoping is that when people question authority, that they can look at this data and say, it makes sense that people aren't making, they're not getting crazy rich off of this that the vaccines aren't hurting people. Um, But I think to an extent you have to accept that that's the way the system works, that if there was no money, research would not get done. We like to think that science is pushed forward by helping people, and it's pushed forward by money. And so there's a helping people that is incredibly important, but if if you want this information that they're making money and that there's a conspiracy there, unfortunately it would be easy to find that information because companies need to make money, especially in research. And so I think this is one of these interesting things where we have to almost accept that there is this side, there is this capitalist side, and that's how some of these things have done so well. We have a really interesting country where we have privatized medicine, and no one else does that. And part of the issue is that it creates these situations where somebody says, Some dude is making money off of a vaccine when it should be a, I think, a socialized, you know, um, public institution where you can't say, you know, some guy is making money. It's, you know, the the government, the institution, whatever it is. We take that away. And so I think this is part of the issue that we have as Americans and the way that our healthcare is organized that we'll run into these issues. Organized now. I mean, maybe we'll. Except the socialized medicine thing, 20 years. I think
0: there's an irony there that the government has a vaccine insurance program that people that are often against vaccines point to, aha, look, there's problems with vaccines that they have to have insurance. But the irony is that that most of these medical companies wouldn't give out vaccines if there wasn't a government-supported insurance program to protect them. This is the government protecting companies so that they will do this public good. And um, I'm sure this is where I say, if I say this, people will, you know, they'll grab onto this information, but that there are one, there have been historically bad batches of vaccine that have caused problems and that we can acknowledge. And there are people that do have legitimate allergic reactions to vaccines. But in both of those cases, that should be underlying the need for herd immunity, right? Right.
6: Right.
0: That's why we need it, because some people can't get to these things.
6: And, again, it's not only vaccines that have that issue. Any medication that you take, any, anything that's created in the lab and given as a treatment from, from a medication standpoint has a risk, has someone who's died from taking it, has someone who's had a bad reaction to it. But we tend not to talk about that. How often when you go to the doctor and they prescribe you, you know, an antidepressant, would you sit and go through six pages of what might go wrong and what do I need to think about and how is this going to be? They say, this is very safe, you should take it, and people go on. When we're giving, again... An injection into young children and infants. Parents are usually more concerned and, and will look more into it, so they are more um, aware of the risks and benefits than the risks and benefits of other meds that they might take. Right, right.
4: You want to ask yourself why we're not having a panel discussion about Viagra, because it would present all of the exact same questions and concerns and ideas. Well, and clearly we don't need a panel discussion about Viagra.
7: <clears throat>
4: <laughs> let's <Moving on>.
0: ruffle. <laughs> we can ruffle right. some feathers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's,
5: let's talk about EDD. Let's sex it up uh, to get more students in the audience. Woohoo! <laughs> Sorry, people I mean, okay, look bored. The so. larger point.
0: The larger point is there's all kinds of risky behaviors we do that kill oh, people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just saw a thing that was sent around that mosquitoes kill more people than rattlesnakes. Mosquitoes kill more people than a lot of things. Why aren't we having a panel discussion on the diseases carried by mosquitoes because chemical companies don't make mosquitoes? To yes. get... Yes, 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 <laughs> right. So let's get to the ethics, because this is this will be the thing that can really um, tick some people off. So Aaron, get us going with what's the ethics uh, uh,
5: Yes. Well, there's this uh, idea, it's called utilitarianism, and for those of you who've had an intro philosophy class or an ethics class, you've probably encountered it. It's a very simple ethical idea. It's, it means doing the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people, and it's an ethical idea, and it doesn't just mean what's good for you, like for your own interests, but rather it also considers the interests of other people as well. So this is like, this idea of vaccinations is just a very clear cut utilitarian idea. This is the greatest good for the greatest number of people. We can eliminate all, these, all of these diseases or uh, not necessarily uh, eliminate them, but we can reduce them, we can make them. I mean, frankly, the very fact that like, all the statistics that Troy cited at the beginning really show us just like how safe our lives are. I mean. I certainly didn 't have any siblings die uh, when I was a child right that just didn 't happen my uh, my great-grandfather, John Henry George Willoughby Sprouse, had large numbers of his siblings die. I mean, it's, it's sad, and mostly because of childhood diseases. And, I mean, our lives have really changed in the last 100 years. So this is just straight-up ethics, right? Like, greatest good for the greatest number of people. Um, we would all benefit from doing this. And it's also very self-centered not getting your child vaccinated. And the reason is, is because you're saying, oh, well, I benefit. My child can benefit and not take any risks, but then... I will benefit, my child will benefit if everyone else gets vaccinated. But the problem is if everyone is making that decision then no one uh, gets vaccinated. And this is a problem called tragedy of the commons um, but we won't get into that here. And then there's one other really important ethical idea and that's here. And this is on the other side of the issue, is that, uh, many people believe that they have this idea of autonomy, that they should be able to make decisions to, uh, to make about what goes in their body and what happens to their body. So they should be free to make these sorts of decisions, that they have liberty. We think that's really important in the United States. People should be able to make these decisions. People get upset when the government, uh, violates your autonomy by saying you have to get your child vaccinated. That angers people. So one, Ethical one way of doing this is, like, clearly it's the greatest good for the greatest number of people to get everyone vaccinated, but everyone doesn't get vaccinated. So if how do you force people to get vaccinated? Well, that violates people's rights. People get upset about that. I don't want to be told what to do. So just one thought that I've seen some philosophers and other people talking about is that we should hold people responsible. Like, you get your child, you refuse to get your child vaccinated, and your child passes the disease on to someone else and that other person gets sick and dies, When there's a lot of immunocompromised people who can't get vaccinated, and we can trace diseases. We can do genetic research. We know how, like, measles goes from carrier to carrier and person to person, so we can trace its source. So if someone dies because your child was not vaccinated and that we can trace it back to you, I, I really personally think that we should hold those parents accountable. Um, so if someone else dies, I really have absolutely no problem saying you should be charged with maybe maybe not murder but say negligent homicide because it was your selfish decision uh, that harmed someone else. Or my child gets really sick, I think, and perhaps I have to spend a lifetime of care because my child has brain damage because you didn't get your child vaccinated, then, you know, you should have some liability for that. Perhaps you're going to pay for my child's medical care for the rest of her life. I mean, we really don't consider that, but... Uh, when we're talking about freedoms, there's also responsibilities that go with those freedoms. So if you're making a freely made choice, an autonomous decision, not to get someone vaccinated, then I think we should also hold you accountable. The alternative to that is forcing everyone to get vaccinated, but you know that kind of goes against the Constitution in many people's minds. So if we don't do that, then I think we also need to institute some sort of legal liability. I've spoken a lot for a panel, so I'll pass the hat over to yeah, my I colleagues. See.
4: Legal liability always gets tricky, you know, once you, especially if you start including diseases. I agree completely, but you could imagine, you know, in a, in a society where people like suing people that somebody could take this the wrong way or that you could say anytime I get sick, anytime I get anything wrong. You know, we, we also run into this really weird issue of how people understand their health that you think of yourself as like, flawless and perfect, and really you're constantly fighting disease. You're constantly waging this balance of, you know, overwhelmed by sickness or your body not doing what it's supposed to do. And so people make a lot of assumptions about where sickness came from or who caused it or anything like that. And you could see with any of those, even with the autonomy, the slippery slope that you can get into in situations.
0: Well, in my fear would be, I should say that the... Opinions of our panelists do not represent the opinions of
1: uh, all faculty <laughs> <not>. and uh, <laughs> Dr. Jenkins.
0: Yeah, the president of the college <laughs> of the board of trustees. But you know, I mean, the, you you could get into the situation where you get you know, like calling out the national guard in, in New Jersey. Like, are we going to be really hunting people down? Are you going to be afraid to go out in public? Like, I like I you know you, you can accidentally infect people. So then you have to have purpose and. It, where do you draw that line? And maybe you had a you need fully get vaccinated, but uh, I mean Can just just uh,
5: Let me just. I, I just want to say like I think that I don't think we'll ever actually see legal liability for that. I think yeah. that that's. But I think if people really want to push the uh, the autonomy idea, I think that we should. That's a reasonable. That's yeah, right. we just hold people accountable. I mean, honestly, as an educator, I really truthfully think that we're just best off educating people about the the benefits and the trade-offs of vaccines. And for me, if you tell someone that me not getting my child vaccinated means that I could potentially kill your sick child who is immunocompromised. And that tugs at my heartstrings. And I see a picture of a kid that's going to die because I don't get my kid vaccinated. And that's a small risk, And then, but that, I have this emotional connection to the other kid. I think there's all sorts of potential uh, campaigns you could do, but I really come down on the side of education, and I really, I, I, I know if you're in my class, you may not believe this, but I have uh, an incredible faith in the power of human knowledge and understanding and that people will do the right thing if you just you know, spend enough time talking to them and enough care listening to them, but yeah. that may take I a little think
3: while. that goes back to Marianne's point, that a health care provider has a big responsibility to educate, and get the vaccine. Yes, you want it? No, sign here. Educate right. them. Tell them why they need the vaccine right. and explain all that. Because I bet you a lot of people that don't get vaccinated don't understand half of what we're saying today, right. how they affect others.
6: And, again, what do they hear? What do they see? They see the star on TV. They see the article in a lady's home journal or, you know, whatever, people, magazine, wherever. Right. And that's the, that's the only information they have, and they don't have the other balance. Um, I also think it reminded me when you were saying that about um – the legal ramifications I mean the other option would be that we create these quarantined areas so people can make a choice to not vaccinate but then they're not allowed to be around the people who are because that goes back to the whole herd immunity issue is if we want to protect everyone, we don't want to um, allow anybody in there that would um, you know possibly be a zombie right that's how this, getting back to World War Z, and that's where, we, where that's where we went We had to protect ourselves from the zombies and we had to be certain somehow that you were not going to turn into a zombie before we would let you into our community. And, you know, we laugh a little, but, I mean, that's not so far from how they used to quarantine that yeah. Troy started with in the early 1900s. Not that long ago, the National Guard would uh, wall off areas of communities because a disease was present. So we have that history that we don't want to repeat.
0: Yeah. Um I want to save a little time for questions, but I have like one last question that I think is important to get to. And you'll often hear people say, you know, science is always changing its mind. Sure, today we believe vaccines are good, but next time, you know, 10 years from now, there's going to be something new. And all of a sudden, science is going to totally change its mind. And I was wondering, especially our scientists, if you could comment, does science change its mind? Like how does science work? How does knowledge grow? These are big questions. But, But what's wrong with that kind of thinking?
3: Well, there's nothing wrong with science changing its mind. We wouldn't be where we are right now if science didn't change its mind. As technology evolves, I mean, think of it as technology, science evolves as well. We wouldn't know what we know. We wouldn't have all these vaccines. We wouldn't have all these medications. We wouldn't have all this if science was ever, not ever changing, if it was just stayed still. And, yes, we might find out 10 years from now some kind of vaccine, you know, made us slightly allergic to something or made us more sensitive to certain, you know, I don't know, as we get older, some things changes, but then again, think about all the time that you spend disease free because of that vaccine right yeah so yeah, you want science to be ever changing
0: and, it, and it with vaccines, years. it's not like we don't have a population like if it was right right yeah
3: and even the schedule of the vaccine comes from it's not a schedule that's randomly put by some marketers out there I mean it's based on a lot of research, a lot of you know. The CDC.gov, it just, and, and even the schedule of vaccine keeps changing depending on what viruses and what pathogens are where and what population.
0: Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. Oh,
7: no. uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, me, me. Um, <laughs> I,
4: I think this is going to lead into the philosophy that this idea of science is that is cumulative, that we make mistakes and improve them and build on what we knew previously. And so it has this effect of um, – accumulating what we believe is the truth about nature. And so that's the job of science, is to understand what on earth is going on. And um, I think that's a really important part with the things that we're talking about, understanding that it's not just change, that it's not just science wildly changing its ideas, that all the ideas are built on previous ideas, and that that change is part of a cumulative process to get at the truth.
6: And, and when we look at the health science. It's that same accumulation of information but around the body, and that is a much younger science than a lot of the other sciences. We don't have as much information as many of the other kinds of sciences do. But the information we do have around vaccines um, is not that we're worried that in the next decade or two we're going to find out something is a long-term problem. The actual information we have about vaccines is that, as we've said, your body just starts removing them. So you even heard Dr. Gupta say, if you were vaccinated before 1956, you may need to go have your titers checked because you may need to be revaccinated. So in the, in the last 60 years, your body probably got all that out of its system anyway, and now you may be at risk. So... Um, it's not that we're expecting in this area some bad thing might come. It's really that we already know um, the effic- efficacy, the effects of this on our body are less and less over time. Right.
0: Okay. okay, so I'd like to open up to questions from the audience. I have a microphone. I will come to you so that we can be sure um, you are heard. Who wants to go first?
4: <laughs> Faculty. A plant. Hello, can, a plant. can you hear me? No kidding.
7: I have, a question. To something. No, I have a question about the, the legal aspects of it because when my kids started school, they weren't allowed in school unless they had had the vaccinations. And, it, I mean, if, if you were immunocompromised and couldn't get them or were for some reason allergic to the vaccines, then, of course, you had a letter from your doctor. Who is it that is exempting all these kids from um,
3: entering school without their vaccinations? Why are we as a society allowing that? In How some, that evolved? In some states like California, you're allowed to sign a waiver. And that's why California, just your belief, your belief, your anti-vaccine. It's
5: it's under, generally under religious freedom. Religious freedom. And there
6: are several doctors who will sign a release. Um, Many of um, the people know I've been studying holistic nursing, and I've been working with a holistic practitioner, and um, part of the rule here in the nursing program is that you have to have a flu vaccine every year in order to be in the hospital and take care of other patients. You have to receive a flu vaccine, and he strongly encouraged me not to take that. So it wasn't even that I was looking for someone to exempt me from it. That practitioner was encouraging it. So there are There are people across the board, it's not just the wacky people that are necessarily saying vaccines aren't a good thing, even with all the data that we have.
7: I would go after people
6: who are exempting them. If if my kid catches a disease from them, I'll go after
7: the practitioner who said, no, he doesn't need the the exemption. If there was no legitimate exemption, then they should not be exempted. This
0: gets to that tension you were talking about, the autonomy versus you know, the greater good, so,
7: yeah.
0: Other questions? One in the back. Oh. The poll was blocking, sir.
7: Um, I'm, I'm actually nine, like nine months pregnant, and uh, I belong to, like, this mommy Facebook group thing, and I thought it was really interesting that you guys brought up the guy from England, Because a lot of the moms on Facebook are fighting about the vaccines. So, like, I'm sitting back here totally, completely, like, I've never been faced with the thought of, like, what to do. So um, it was really good because I'm totally going to go with the vaccines because, I mean, my nephew's autistic, you know, and and my sister was one of those people who were like, oh, it's linked to that. Well, she figured out it wasn't. So, like, now it's kind of like I'm like, well... You know, I I guess I can now, but my question um, goes to, I think you're Marianne, Mm -hmm. for nursing. Does breastfeeding help at all with that? Like, if I got my vaccines, like, would it help with
6: my child's immune system at all? In general, breastfeeding does support the infant's immune system developing, but you're not going to be able to pass specific antigens like that from mother to baby. So the vaccination is a supplement to that natural process. So breastfeeding certainly will strengthen your infant's immune system, but it, you can't pass on your vaccination to your infant.
7: Even if even if I have like the flu and I'm like super sick, should I still breastfeed?
6: Like, would that help? It, um, and, are you, all, you know, I'm not a doctor. I can't play one on TV, so I don't uh-huh. want to give you medical advice. But in general, um, it's safe to breastfeed um, with many issues like the flu or things like that. But you would always want to talk to your doctor.
7: Okay. I just wanted to know if, like, maybe it kind of helped with that with vaccine. So, I, I mean, that
6: certainly follows the line of thinking that we're talking about, where your body really is taking care of itself in a lot of ways.
0: other questions If you're in any of these faculty members classes this is your chance to show off all right there
6: you are.
8: <laughs> I don't know if it's a question that anybody can answer but are there programs being put into play possibly in like school like early education or in your doctor's offices that will be educating people on this, on being vaccinated or the danger that they are putting their children into. I mean, I travel a lot and I know a lot of people that don't vaccinate their kids. They never bothered to ask me where I went, where to research what I was exposed to. I mean, on that map, Asia was dark um, maroon and I've traveled there many times and nobody has said to me, like, oh, measles, my kids. And then later on, somebody's be like, you killed my kid. It's not my fault you didn't get it vaccinated. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, I remember when we were small and they were changing the money. I mean, it's something on the opposite side, but they were, like, teaching us, like, oh, this is how about you're going to know about the new money and whatever. And then kids can go and tell their parents that kind of stuff because they're like sponges. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Or if there's, like, or, like, yeah, like immigrant families or anything like that that don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't have the access. They don't know the language. They don't even know where to look for this information if there's, like, programs I mean, I know we have this panel here, but how many of us are here? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. On a bigger aspect being put into play. You
6: know, when I was... Trying to research for some of the data things. I did see there are some programs supported by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and the uh, American Pediatric Association is creating a lot of information for pediatricians and uh, school nurses, doctors' offices, things like that. Um, I didn't look specifically in like child education settings, so there may be, um, but when I was reading in general, I didn't see anything that you're talking about, like getting the kids involved and not just the parents involved in the decision making. And that's, I think, that's I that's a really good idea because, as you said, the more the kids understand, they can help the family make a good decision.
4: I agree. I think it's a good point. I think this would be a great topic for like a middle school science Mm -hmm. or like a high school science class. Um, I think programs about educating people would be great. I mean, I know you can go to a doctor's office and look at pamphlets, the same things you get at Walgreens. I don't know if you would run into issues with the religious freedom, again, like you're teaching my kid this or that. I, again, I think it's great. I just don't know how, many, how much money there is for that. I mean, that's always what's unfortunate about education and in some elements of medicine is that people don't want to put money into it, and so they won't make posters, flyers, you know, send somebody to a school to talk about it. Um, but again, I think it's great. I think it would be a great idea.
6: And, and I just okay. want to add that I, I think when we're talking about um, responsibility and autonomy, I'm going to hold Troy responsible for a lot of this, because last year is when he created all these panels and already had this on the schedule. And now what we've seen is in the last four months, that's when there's been these outbreaks and lots of problems happening. So he has he really predicted that it was going to be a current issue, and I'm wondering oh, how much he he's behind further. this. He caused it. <laughs> yeah, that, it looks a little... Try to it, cause it looks a little suspect.
3: Yeah. Before you come
4: back here, just tell us what shots you've had just before you come back to the
3: table. Can I right. just add? Well, can I just add that uh, this week is World World Health Immunization Week, and on CDC.gov, you can go with um, the World Health Health Organization. They have a lot of posters that are that are encouraging schools institutions to go ahead and just basically print out the posters and post them in four more. So there is, there seems to be, and this is a new process, I think it's third or fourth year, so there seems to be a push on yeah. your front door. Yes, yeah, a huge poster. Right. So, before you come in, make sure you have your vaccine.
6: And I, I was being a little silly, but I did want to make the point that it is a current – um, issue that is new, so maybe we will see that. You know, we're, our society is generally pretty slow to respond. So, you know, as they said, we're seeing these trends in the last six months really going up, and the outbreaks really occurring in different places. So maybe we will see more money being spent or more resources being available because it is a problem now that wasn't, you know, two years ago. Okay. Uh,
7: I'm not even sure if there's studies about this, or we kind of touched upon it with. Um chemicals in the vaccines people are worried about other than just causing autism. Um, I know a lot of people know it was disproved, um, but what I'm getting with my daughter and with people knowing I'm a nursing student just asking me, um, in the first year of life kids get like four vaccines at a time. There are so many chemicals coming in at once. That's got to cause something now. Right.
6: There were studies on that. I didn't, you know, I didn't go through all my studies because Troy was poking me that I was getting boring. So, but there definitely are, you can look up, there are definitely studies on that that show um, people, um, some people have chosen to do a slow schedule and they separate all of those vaccinations and the side effects that we're looking for and the adverse effects that we're looking for had no higher increase in the people that, did them all at once, and the people that spread them out. So, again, they compared the two groups because that is one option that parents have been taking lately. And I know some of our um, nursing faculty that work um, with moms, work in OB and PEDs, do even encourage that for parents that are concerned to not skip the vaccinations altogether, but at least, you know, again, work with your body and spread them out to give your body a chance to accumulate them. The other study that I found that was interesting though is that, um, again, thinking about a, what a one to two year old is exposed to in the world and how many times they put their hands to their mouth after they've touched all kinds of things, then they did look at that and the amount of antigens in the body to kind of E. coli and salmonella and all the things that are around us all the time were much greater than even a combination vaccine created or delivered all at once.
0: So I think we're at a point where that's a good um, ending point. I want to thank everyone from, for coming and thank our panelists. So how about a round of applause for them? Thank you. And we'll be around for questions afterwards. Thank you again, and have a good rest of the semester. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit
1: www.morainevalley.edu library.